Hi, I'm Andy Sohn. Camp Arcadia and Church Extension Fund are two of my favorite ministries. I came to camp for teen and family weeks and worked on staff there for four of the best summers of my life. I grew in mind, body, and spirit. CEF's mission to help build God's kingdom is integral to places like camp that make ministry happen. CEF provides loan and investment options for Lutherans and other ministries. To learn more about how you can get involved, visit mi-cef.org. Church Extension Fund, building the future in Him. Welcome to the 2022 season of the Arcadia Cast. Camp Arcadia's Dean and Lecturers program recorded live in the assembly during the 100th anniversary season. In groupings of episodes, we will feature each series of lectures shared during camp's 2022 season. So grab your cup of coffee and imagine Lake Michigan out the windows to your right as you tune in and join the camp community in listening and learning. Okay, let's go. Uh, a couple things from yesterday, just sort of cleaning things up. I'll try to speak more loudly. Chip says I ring because I don't. But I, I kind of, you know, I grew up with pastors who kind of yelled at me, and so I tried not to be care. I realize what this looks like when I do this, right? You know, so I try to try not to do that. Second thing, we for both of us forgot to say this yesterday. Uh, Arthur and I are taking a group of people to the Holy Land. Uh, I've got brochures if you're interested in going. We're, uh, we already have one bus full. We have probably 60 reservations. I think we'd probably max out at 90. So uh, if you're interested in going, we're going the Tuesday, the second Tuesday after Easter. The first Tuesday is still Passover, so nothing's going to be happening. But the second Tuesday after Easter, we're going. And it's a fabulous group. Arthur and I and Linda and Kirby have done this <clears throat> once before together. And uh, Arthur has done it several times. I mean, to the point where Arthur is on a first-name basis with the guides and the vendors. And it's quite a nice experience to go with him. Uh, and we've requested really two really great guides. The line of the trip last time, we asked one of the guides when we were in Bethlehem. I, I said to him, how long has your family been Christians? And he looked at me kind of quizzically and he goes, from the beginning? And it's interesting because he's a Palestinian, right? And so we, the way the news is shaped here, we, we sort of, you know, we look at the news and we sort of get our categories. And so it was such an interesting thing. And what Arthur may not tell you is that he wrote a master's thesis on the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, which is one of the highlights of being there. I mean, it's one of the things where you can say, you know, Jesus was here. The guides uh, playfully, but with us, will rate the sites on from one to ten on authenticity. So the upper room, probably a one minus. <laughs> but you know, you get to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Was Jesus crucified right here, and was Jesus buried right here? Yeah, you're at a nine plus. I mean, the tradition is startlingly strong, and everything sort of works out. And some things like Masada or uh, you know, the Sea of Galilee hasn't moved much. So, yeah, I mean, you're, <laughs> you're pretty certain that, the, you know, this is where all the fish came out, 153 of them. So anyway, um, we're going we're gonna to do that as well. So if you're interested, get to one of us. It's going to be a lot of fun. So, all right, let's pray. Uh, Lord, help. Amen. Now, one of the things I've tried to do across the course of 
of the troubles that we've had is to help people have shorter prayers, but actually perhaps more rhythmically and more often. The, in many ways, the last few years have been absolutely debilitating for people, hence the title today is It's Safe to Go Outside. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's happened is that people got all jammed up in their prayer lives. And, you know, if you can't pray at all, that's really a danger sign. Uh, that means that something is kinked in your faith, and you really need to get some help with that because prayer does remarkable things from strengthening you to banishing the demons to putting you on the same page with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But qualitatively and quantitatively, we need to be extraordinarily careful about judging other people and ourselves. And yes, you know as well as I all the things that Jesus talked about, about not showing off on street corners and not, you know, building up our prayers with many words. Let me just say that these two things are not our problems. <laughs> right? So more prayer and uh, more words probably would be okay. But as a place to start, Lord, help. Or there are some other ones that I haven't given you all of them that I've had, but this one, Lord, make my heart like your heart. I can't remember which saint I stole that from, but it's not from me. Or, Lord, send angels. Right? Three words, but remarkably powerful. And so, uh, you know, partly there's a reason why these prayers are so short, because I want you to be able to take them with you. And in the middle of the night, when you're all alone, um, you can either, you know, stare at the ceiling in fear, or you can say, Lord, help, or Lord, send angels. And, you know, if you say it a thousand times, you who have trouble going to sleep, I guarantee you, short of listening to one Arthur's sermons or mine, it'll put you right to sleep, okay? You're going to be fine. So, just a little bit from yesterday, why tell stories? Well, it's very simple. Stories shape us. And they create, in some sense, now you hear this in the right way, in some sense they create our world, or they create our space within the world. And so um, this is a common most postmodern theme, but it also becomes uh, very practical. When I was reading a lot of articles about fear and anxiety, one of the things I came about, one of the things I came across was an article on fear and training of Navy SEALs, which, you know, they're remarkable folks. If you, do we have one SEAL in the group here at all? No, when you bump into them, you know them. So uh, they're, they're interesting folks. But among the ways that they talk about preparing for a mission where, you know, you, you may not come back, they, they go into difficult spots are this kind of, and I'm just summarizing it, this is not the way they summarize it, but you, you know, you think it, uh, see it, and among the things, say it. So you tell yourself a positive story about a positive outcome. And this turns out to be kind of a universal way to fight fear. You think about yourself doing the action. Um, you uh, imagine that action. Happen. You speak or you tell yourself a positive story, and then you move forward with positive action. So telling stories are very, very practical. Now, um, it's across the board. And so I've given you a little bit here from a Jewish woman who writes semi-regularly for the Wall Street Journal about matters of religion. Uh, she's a, 
uh, a therapist, but just sort of, sort of go with me on this story. As a therapist, I'm often asked to explain why depression and anxiety are so common among children and adolescents. One of the most important explanations, and perhaps the most neglected, is declining interest in religion. This cultural shift already has proved disastrous for millions of vulnerable young people. And then the next bit, you basically have the American Journal of, Epis of, a, uh, of, a, of Epidemiology, Epidemiology and people from Harvard. You can trust them. So, uh, you know, turn the page. The result, children who uh, went to religious services had uh, a higher uh, rate of volunteering, of mission, of forgiveness, lower probability of drug use, and early sexual initiation. So then the next paragraph, pity that the U.S. has seen a 20% decrease in attendance at former religious services in the past 20 years. This is a couple years old. It's much worse than that now. So, um, and there's a range of reasons for that. In 2018, the American Family Survey showed nearly half of adults under 30 don't identify with the religion. So um, you can either see that as woe or you can see that as opportunity. So I prefer to see it as opportunity and our world is much like the early church, and we need to do better. We had a 1,500-year uh, head start. You know, we had a 1,500-year lead in the fourth quarter with six minutes to go when we blew it. You know, it's on the church. You know, we, we had control of things for, for 16, 15, 1,400 years. Yeah, we always didn't play it as well as we should have. So, nihilism is fertilizer for anxiety and depression. So that nothing matters, nothing is true, and there is no good outcome, right? And being realistic is overrated. The belief in God, in a protective and guiding figure to rely on when times are tough, is one of the best kinds of support for kids in an increasingly pessimistic world. That's only one reason from a purely mental health perspective to pass down a faith tradition, to tell stories, right? But now get this, I'm often asked by parents, how do I talk to my child about death if I don't believe in God or heaven? My answer is always the same. Lie. <laughs> and this is startling on so many levels. I mean, the thing is, we all lie to our children for our own benefit. But I mean, here's professional encouragement to do so, right? The idea that you simply die and turn to dust may work for some adults, but it does not help children. Belief in heaven helps them grapple with this tremendous an incomprehensible loss. In the age of broken families, distracted parents, school violence, and nightmarish global warming predictions, imagination plays a big part in, a ch in children's abilities to cope. Now, the only trouble for the, with that for us is that lies don't end well. And lying is, lying is one of the things that Christians are most sensitive about, even though we all fall prey to it. Because, of course, the whole thing went bad in our very first story because a lie was told and believed. Did God really say? And with that, our story is, this is the beginning of the murder of the human race. And so Satan then, from Jesus himself, bears the moniker, Father of Lies. So, you know, I'd prefer that we were a little more careful with this. I actually understand this, and it's clever and probably um, diagnostically 
and uh, practically helpful in some situations, but it's going to run out of steam at some point. I would think it might be better if we told people the truth and then let the chips fall where they fall. And so just the observation that a paper-thin lie can hold back a reservoir of divine gifts. Pause. Every sin starts with a lie. This is the lie that starts every sin. Jesus doesn't love me. Every sin starts with the very same lie. Do you see this is why it's so dangerous? God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't know me. God has abandoned me. That's the story of Eden. Every sin starts with this lie that Jesus doesn't love me. When you feel horrible, when you feel alone, when you feel abandoned, when you rationalize your own sins, the reason for each one of these is a single reason. If you can't say something in five words or less, you don't know what you're talking about. Every sin starts with this lie. Test it yourself. Jesus doesn't love me. And of course, the opposite is true. <clears throat> to know that Jesus loves you, holds you, embraces you, is for you and never against you, is the way that you proceed through life. So I'm turning the page. Point two. What's peculiar about Jesus and his stories? Why should you listen to Jesus? What makes Jesus attractive? Why is he so interesting? Why has he had so much sway? Why is he the most influential person that's ever lived? Why? Right? Why is that? Because Jesus tells the truth. Right? Because he tells this great story, this epic, that satisfies our souls at the deepest level. He soothes our deepest pain, he erases our darkness, and he lets us then welcome the future, which is the definition of hope, or at least one definition of hope. So Jesus' stories bestow love, right? Love is the only virtue. Every other virtue is derived from divine love. Love is the only virtue. And love is touched to you in word and sacrament. And the consequence of that love is hope. So that's, you know, as theoretical as I want to be for you today, but it's quite, quite simple, right? Never lie. Never believe a lie. This is the lie that crushes us, that Jesus doesn't love us. This is the truth that sustains us. That Jesus loves us so much that he would rather die than hold our sins against us. This is, you know, what's true. And everything else falls out of this. How did this happen? Here's a couple of stories. Jesus says to a couple of guys who seem to be following him, what are you looking for? Right? The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? The uh, Isenheim altarpiece where Jesus is beaten on the cross and John stands pointing to him like this. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following. 
what are you seeking, right? The great question of our age, still, what are you seeking? What do you want? Why are you so miserable? Why does your soul hurt? Why are you unfulfilled? Why are you unsatisfied? Why are you restless? Why are you frustrated? Why can't you sleep at night? What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? See, already what we talked about yesterday, the proximity, the nearness, the locatedness. Where is it that you can find God? Where is God available to you? Rabbi, where are you staying? And Jesus gently says, come and see, right? Come and see. Very shortly after that, it's gone from a couple of guys to everybody. Everyone is looking for you. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and they said, everybody is looking for you. And he said to them, okay, then let's go to the next town because that's where everyone lives in those towns that I may preach, that is, that I may touch there also for that is why I came out. And he went through Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So, and you know, Arthur sort of, you know, said this for me yesterday, but, you know, just a technicality, but it actually matters. Jesus Christ is not the gospel, right? Jesus Christ is not the gospel. Jesus Christ is the incarnate son born of our blessed virgin mother. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Holy Trinity. Jesus not, Christ is not the gospel. The gospel is... When Jesus Christ is touched to you. When he is touched to your skin in Holy Baptism, when he is touched to your tongue in the Holy Eucharist, when he is touched to your eardrums, as someone speaks to you, sound is just touch at a distance. Find a physics major today on the beach and ask him. You know, when I'm talking, if you could see it, Little sound waves, little molecules are bouncing through the air from my tongue, vocal cords, to your ear and touching you. Then it hits your eardrum, takes a left turn and goes right to your heart, and gifts are given and faith is created. The gospel is touch. This is why the sacraments cannot be ancillary or an afterthought. And the great sadness of Lutherans who looked like anti-sacramental Protestants in America, you know, they sold their birthright for a mass of porridge. The Eucharist is the center of life. As Herman Sasse said, the Eucharist is Christ. And so everyone is looking for you. They're looking for your story. They're looking for your touch. And touched repeatedly, thoroughly, and gracefully is our cure. It's our consolation, our healing, our encouragement, our hope. And it is, frankly, the way that we can live without anxiety. And that's what we saw yesterday from, you know, the two martyrs, right? They're in these horrible circumstances, one in prison, one at death. 
and cheerfully they go on to their deaths and then on to eternal life. How does that happen? What do they know that we don't know, right? What do they have that we don't have? Why are saints saints and why do martyrs go gratefully to death? Why? Right? Because they know something true that the world does not know. The word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace of truth. He came to his own people and his own people knew him not. But for those who believed, he became the power of eternal life. The Christmas story, right? So we live by telling stories and we need to tell stories to make our wrongs right. Time to turn to point number five already. Gee, I hope I have enough notes. Okay. <clears throat> so what happened in between the few and the many? Well, one thing is that Jesus said very kindly to these people, you can come along and play. Let's go outside and play. But then this too, right? Story time. Immediately, uh, Jesus left the synagogue. He entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever. They told him about her. Jesus came and took her by the hand. Dr. Jesus, he lifted her up. The fever left her. She began to serve him. Translation, he came to her. He came near to her. He touched her. And he lifted her up. Not unlike when... <laughs> Arthur gave you this great story of Jesus in a crowd of thousands going, hey, who touched me? Hey, somebody bumped into me. I felt it, right? The power went out of me, right? He touched her and she was healed. It all goes together. And so, in a place without universal health care, without any safety net, right? Without many healers, the word, the story was spread, and that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered at the door. And you can imagine Jesus like a sponge. You know, Arthur did a great job of this yesterday. Jesus like a sponge absorbing people's pain and anguish, right? He, Jesus, he absorbs their sinfulness. He absorbs everything that's made that's wrong in them, and absorbing that, they're made right. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. He cast out many demons. He did not permit the demons to speak because they knew him, and he doesn't want the demons telling his story. They won't tell it rightly because even though they tell a story, they are liars, right? And so with his story, Jesus breaks the curse of evil. Now, just as a sidebar, you know, I can't make you do any of this. And I don't want to make you do anything because the gospel never works by force. Nothing good, capital G, good, happens by force. And the Lord never works by force. The Lord is not a violent man. Violence is of the Antichrist, right? Not of the Christ. But all I can say to you is what Jesus said. Come and see. Taste and see. Follow me. Right? In his story, with his words and deeds, are found hope. And now I've sort of given you here kind of a summary of where we've been so far, yesterday and today. 
proximity, Jesus comes near, and touch, because Jesus loves us. And that touch is a merciful touch that brings healing to our wounds. And not just with the healing, but it's not a one-off, but then the invitation to follow me. And as we follow, we get our ducks in a row. So order is restored, right? The Camino, the way is made by walking, one after another after another. Not over there and not over here. It's a remarkably nice place over there, and this is beautiful. But Jesus is going this way, and if you don't follow him, he's going to disappear over the horizon. Romans chapter 2, you should not presume upon the righteousness of God. He is not always there. He is there for you now and invites you, but you should not presume that he will always there. There is a terminus, and time ticks on, and it's not to be wasted. Just, not just because people are going to go to hell. Where hell is, you get your way forever. And let me just say to you, you don't want your way. As much as you think you want your way, you do not want your way. And you certainly don't want your way forever. Hell is of our own creation. As C.S. Lewis says, the door to hell is locked from the inside. Follow me. And then have relief. So often um, in our preaching and teaching, we act as if this is a binary solution. That the only reason for you know, all of you to be here or for you to follow Jesus so you don't go to hell let me just say, that's the first step in the Christian life, not the last step. All the other steps are about shaping your life to the image of Christ. As St. Paul says, imitate me the way I imitate Christ. So I've turned the page to seven. Why are Jesus' stories different than all other stories? Or another way that you could say this is, why not the story of the Buddha, who was terribly influential and remarkable in many ways? If it wasn't for Jesus, I'd be a Taoist. Lao Tzu is particularly interesting to me. Right? But why this story and not the other stories? Well, because this story is alive. Right? Um, we argue all about inspiration and what in the world that means, but here's a couple of things it does mean that the Holy Spirit tells us the story the way he wants to tell it and he lets us hear it the way he wants us to hear it. And by the way, the stories of the Holy Spirit have the added advantage of being true. And truth does remarkable things to people if we just let it have its way with us. So these Stories bring their own spirit. They bring their own power and they do what they say. These stories can actually change people. Now, to all of you good folks, my gentle admonition is let them change you more. When you think about the world in which you live and whether or not it's safe to go outside, don't always first look at those other people. Those horrible, evil, outsider, other 
you know, Gentile, demon-possessed, wounded, sick, leprous, other people. Because, surprise, surprise, these are the people that Jesus came to love, to heal, and to save. So when we look at ourselves, let's get busy. The, made is, the way is made by walking, right? Deeds are done by doing. Let's go. And together, so much good can be done. So his stories will let, they'll have their way with us if we let them. And um, when Jesus touches us, the great glory is that these stories become our story. So yesterday I spoke to you about how when you pray the, the Lord's Prayer, the Heavenly Father hears Jesus' voice. You pray, your Heavenly Father hears Jesus' voice. Likewise, when the Heavenly Father looks at you, he sees Jesus. This is what it means to have his story be your story. So you go to the Easter Vigil. Why do you read the stories, three or five or seven of the nine of those stories? Why do we read the story of creation? Why do we read the story of the Red Sea? Why do we read the three men in the fiery furnace? Why do we read from Isaiah? Why do you pay for things that are worthless? Come, eat food without cost, and drink water and wine that are free. Why do we read those stories? These stories are your stories. The entire scripture is yours. You see your face in it. This is your pilgrimage. This is your salvation. And to move toward that, you know, at least to get started again if you're struggling or, or uh, um, staggering a bit, these little prayers, Lord, as you will and as you know, have mercy. Jesus, here I am at Scott. Lord, help. Lord, make my heart your heart. This is not so hard. Two words or three are not so hard. At some point, to be a Christian, you do need to do something. Now that something is a response to what the Lord has already done. It's letting the Holy Spirit have its way with you. Start somewhere, right? And then, uh, you remember, yesterday, yesterday, Abba Macarius, I will endure for the sake of Jesus. Now, um, Arthur and I were talking on the porch this morning, you know, if this isn't my favorite story in Scripture, you know it's top ten story. This story has everything. So we're going to read the story once by color. Because as you know, in the church you tell time by color. You tell stories by color. What time is it? It's green. Right? Hopefully they're teaching this in the ark this morning. Otherwise I'm available as a guest teacher. Uh, what time is it? It's green. So one way is to tell the story by color. And then we'll go back and tell the story by words. But if you want, um, I've given you each a little copy of the icon. It's not fabulous. Uh, but if you want, you don't have to follow along. You can just sort of look at the icon. You can imagine a bit. <clears throat> so, not point nine. Are we brave enough to go outside? You remember that icons are written in red? or at least a, a strong tradition of them being spoken of is written, not painted in red. People disagree about that a bit, but it's a valuable thing. But if you look at this, and I encourage you, you know, find a larger 
icon of this if you can to get close to it if you want. But you say to yourself, now what's, what's happening in the source? So let's just first just read the colors. So Jesus emerges from the eternal blues. That round circle is this deep, deep blue. It's one of those sort of deep uh, blue-black colors that you sort of fall into, you know, it's, it's bottomless, which of course is exactly the meaning that Jesus is emerging from eternity, from the essence of God, from timelessness, Sorry, Stephen Hawking. He's emerging from timelessness and he emerges in flesh and blood. And you notice that he comes gently with his hands in a posture of blessing. So when your pastor blesses you at the end of the day, you know, it looks something like this or something like this. The first two letters of Christos, er, right? if you want, or if you're Eastern, because he's going to put Jesus' name on you. He's going to bless you. So Jesus comes with a hand that blesses, not to hit, right, or to, to damage, but to bless. And uh, open-handed to you, Jesus comes from this eternal blue. He comes in the flesh. And you'll notice that he's floating above the landscape. So Jesus is like us, but he's not like us. Right? He floats. He's otherworldly, and yet he's in the world. He's God, and yet he's flesh. And you'll notice, it's not quite as apparent here, but Jesus is the source of light. So Jesus is white, and he's the sun. He illuminates uh, everything else that's happening. So down the mountain, the, the rocks get white, and if you look closely, the faces of the people are illuminated in such a way that the light is coming from Jesus. So he's the source of light and so then of clarity and purity and joy. And you'll notice that Moses and Elijah who have joined him, you know, you notice a couple things about him. First, just to be clear, you know they're technically dead. Right? And yet they're alive. And so they have this bow of reverence to the one who's made them alive. There the law and the prophets are with Jesus. And they're chatting things over. They're telling stories. How do you think this will work out? Arthur alluded to this yesterday. Jesus comes and he's about to make his turn to Jerusalem. And he's going to take six months to go three days walk because it's so blasted painful to carry all the wounds that he's absorbed from every sin in the entire universe and to die for that. You know, as one of my professors used to say, somewhat boldly and yet starkly, the Father damns the Son on the cross. Now before I have to read another New York Times article about how that's divine child abuse, I will say also to you, nothing good happens by force. Jesus welcomed his death in exchange for your death. Nothing that happens by force. You'll notice if you're still looking that the disciples are nimbus free. Is there anybody with a nimbus here besides Chip? 
The chip's head kind of glows when you look at it. <laughs> Can't say that. If you glow, if you have a nimbus, it means you're holy. Or through to the other side, thus holy. So you notice that Jesus and Elijah and Moses have a nimbus. You'll also notice those disciples who have been rocked backwards down the mountain and have their hands up to protect themselves and are in great fear are nimbus free. That's unfortunate because that means they're terrified and tumbling and things have gone bad for them. They're paralyzed and dread-filled and they don't know what to do next. All right. to come. Now let's read the story with words. Again, if you can just look at the icon. But I'll tell you the story in a way that, <clears throat> forgive me, but will be generously translated. If you want to check any of these Greek words later, Arthur will be available on the beach from <laughs> one to four. But otherwise, it's not heresy. After six days, Jesus embraced Peter and James. Yes, it is the word for take, the word for gather, but it's also the word for embrace or hold near or hold dear, the way you'd hold a child who was frightened or a young child who would need some guidance. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain. You remember on All Saints, we have this prayer the most beautiful prayers at Christmas and All Saints. Um, we pray for those who have gone into God's nearer presence, who've gone higher, who've gone closer, right? And so what they experience is this nearer presence, right? It's why monasteries are built, you know, high up. It's not there's anything more holy there. It's that it reminds you that there is a place to which God pulls you, which is quite other, those monasteries in Meteora, right? He led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, careful here, right? It's not because they're so much better than everybody else, but because, as Bonhaver once said, God loves each one of us as if we were the only one and so these are uniquely his, these three. And he pulls them close, and he was transfigured for you of a particular age. This is mighty Morphin Power Ranger stuff, <laughs> metamorphuo, right? He was, he went through a metamorphosis. He was transfigured. How do you talk about this? How do you talk about a person who suddenly glows so bright you can't look at him anymore? And by the way, the very same word transfigured is used for you later as Christians. You are transfigured because of Christ. So he was transfigured before them, and his face, in which we see the face of God, sort of in bright form and high definition, but only as much as we can bear in this life, because a man or woman cannot see the face of God directly and live, not in this life the occasional exception for Moses and those like him. His face shone like the sun, 
you know, the sun which pulls everything into its orbit, the sun that, which gives life, the sun which radiates and yet draws at the same time, the sun which enlightens. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared Moses and Elijah talking with him, telling stories. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, this is great. I guess it's great. Just hanging out here with you and Moses and Elijah. I know the Heavenly Father is about to make an appearance and the Holy Spirit must be here and just we three and hey, isn't this cool? And someday I hope we can sit at your right and your left. This is great. <laughs> right? That'd be the worst construction on it. The best construction is this word that means good also means beautiful. Which is why your liturgy has to be beautiful. It has to be beautiful. It is, as the Russians said when they came to Istanbul and saw the Orthodox liturgy for the first time, heaven has come to earth. Right? Beauty changes us. And if you want, we'll obey. If you want, <laughs> there's nothing worse than you know one of us with a good idea. If you want, we could make three tents, three booths. We could stay here together. You could stay in one, and Moses could stay in the other. There's a triple at the end of the hall with its own bathroom. We'll get that one. <laughs> and we'll just stay inside because it's beautiful. It's, it's going to be great, right? And then while he was still speaking, the Heavenly Father had a different idea and a bright cloud. And you know whenever a bright cloud bright cloud shows up, like pay attention, right? So on top of Sinai and at the uh, synagogue, a pillar of cloud by day and, and a fire by night, right? Or when the uh, high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and was meant to make the incense so thick that he couldn't see his way for fear that he would look God in the eyes, right? Which is the reason why you should use incense. That, and Jesus loves it, and the devil hates it. But that's probably another week for most of you. So <laughs> we'll come back. So this bright cloud soaked them in divine things. And a voice told a story from the cloud. This is my divinely loved from forever, best of all, one with me, son. And I'm very pleased with them. Which, by the way, is how God talks about you. When he looks at you, you know, he says, you're my son, I'm really pleased with you. I think you're wonderful. And son, of course, in the positively patriarchal sense of everything that I have is yours. People talk the way they talk in their culture. Whatever is mine is yours. Beautiful stuff. With you I am well pleased. You're mine, you're here, you have access, I approve, I love. Let's play together. Listen to him. Which of course, you know, if I could wish one cure on America right now. Hold on, Chip told me not to poke the bear. Chip said to the deans, don't you two cause any trouble. <laughs> Us? <laughs> Arthur? Me? As Nowen says, 
Listening is spiritual hospitality. You know how hard it is to cook and clean for other people? Henry Nouwen says, listening is spiritual hospitality where you'll completely absorb everything the other person says and thus needs and then respond appropriately. Right? Listen to him, which in Hebrew, of course, also means to obey him. They're good Jews. When the disciples heard this, they fell on the faces. There was plenty to be terrified about. Terrified is the word for being paralyzed. You can't run. You can't hide. You're just dead or going to be dead in a moment as soon as whatever is chasing you catches you. But Jesus came to them, proximity, nearness, locatedness, the way he comes to you in the Eucharist, the way he comes to you in baptism, the way he comes to you to absolve you when you're on your knees, when you're in the posture. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when, when the queen knights someone, people kneel, bow, and expose their neck. And if the queen likes, she can lop off his head. Or she can bless him. Same for you. They fell on their faces. They were paralyzed. Jesus came to them. The Lord always makes the first move. And he touched them. Great word. Hoptimai. If you open up your iPhone right now, if you go to settings, you'll find a little thing that says sound and this is it. This is hot. Jesus optimized them. Jesus opened up their settings, and now he's going to touch them in a way that changes them. It's not just touch. This is beautiful in this Greek word. It's not just touch. It's touch plus change. Right? You're going to, he's going to change their settings. Right? So Jesus touched them and he said, Rise. Of course, a word for resurrection. Come back to life. Right? And have no fear. There's nothing to be afraid of. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw only Jesus, but that was enough. Everybody else has gone home. But Jesus is still there in the flesh, nearby, loving them, embracing them, holding on to them, and that's enough. From now until the day you drop dead, that's enough. If you're fortunate enough to see the skies open, and, you know, the brilliance of God soak you through and overwhelm you, God bless you, and I'll be a believer. But if not, Jesus is enough. And then, instead of staying there by themselves, what does Jesus do? Jesus comes down the mountain. What's the very first story when Jesus comes down the mountain? You know what it is? It's the guy who's thrashing, the kid who's thrashing around, demon-possessed, throwing himself in the fire. And this is why it takes Jesus six months to go three days. Because the world is a hell of a mess. Down the mountain he comes and he casts out the demon and restores the family and puts it back together and calms the village and then to the next place and then to the next place. And he says to people, don't tell any stories. Because you're not ready to tell stories yet. So behind that is you all should get ready to tell stories. And I'll remind you of St. Francis of Assisi. You know, if necessary, use words. <laughs> Preach the gospel, said St. Francis. If necessary, use words. So down the mountain Jesus goes to life. Now, uh, at point number 14, 
is a little bit from my old tutor, Rowan Williams, uh, who became the Archbishop of Canterbury, badass at the royal wedding. And, uh, you know, you can sort of read that through, but that's some of the most beautiful prose. I mean, I'm going to steal three minutes just to tell you. I mean, this is like, you can't, you know, people who can write this way are otherworldly. The combination of beauty and intellect and sensitivity and delivery in the Gospels, the Transfiguration is introduced by apparently innocent words after six days. From early times, the commentators have said this is an allusion to creation. The Transfiguration is the climax of the creative work of God. Either the entrance into joy and repose of the seventh day or the beginning of the new creation, the eighth day. So that's why your font has eight sides sometimes. Depending on the symbolism you want. In Jesus, the world of ordinary prosaic time is not destroyed. You're not destroyed when Jesus comes near, but is broken up and reconnected, you know, reordered. Your ducks are in a row. It works no longer just in straight lines, but in layers and spirals of meaning. That's why you come back to camp next year. There's more to talk about, more to learn. We begin to understand how our lives, like those of Moses and Elijah, have meanings we can't know in the present moment. The real depth and significance of what we say and do now won't appear until more of the light of Christ has been seen. Short translation, we cannot see ourselves in real time. No one has the ability to see themselves in real time and so the, and the alternative is to obey. But if this pinches you, then you need to appeal to the great theologian Karl Lagerfeld, who says, love and obedience. Is there any difference? If you love what you do, there is no difference. And so what we think is crucially important today may not be so. What we think is insignificant may be what really changes us for good and evil don't lie, tell the truth, pay attention. Christ's light alone will make the final pattern coherent for each one of us as for all human history. And that light shines on the far side of the world's limits, the dawn of the eighth day. When Christ is transfigured, it is as if there is a brief glimpse of the end of all things, the world aflame with God's light. We see that every act and suffering of Jesus is part of the act of God, embraced freely, not by force. The gospel never works by force. In God's journey toward us out of the depths. We can also think of how the shape of our own lives is finally going to be in God's hands, not ours. You want the difference between being restless and not being restless? between having meaning and not having meaning, between having love and not having love, between being true and being false, it is if your life is in God's hands or not. Like Moses and Elijah, we don't know yet, in John's words, what we shall be. Our time, our stories about ourselves, our histories, are the best that we can do from where we stand and look. Don't be so hard on each other. People are doing their best. But God's perspective can do strange things with history. And we are not the best judges of the meanings of our lives. What really matters to God 
what shows God to the world. But we are given a glimpse of what God can do in this rare moment of direct vision when the door of perception is opened by and in Jesus. And the end of the world is fleetingly there before us. And finally, we can let ourselves contemplate the fact that the divine freedom shown us in this vision tell us both that there is no escape from the world in which we have put our, been put as creatures and there is nowhere from which God can finally be exiled. This is the great challenge to faith. Knowing that Christ is in the heart of darkness and we are called to go there with him. In John 12, Thomas and the other disciples pray, let us go and die with him. And indeed, death lies ahead. The dead Lazarus decaying in the tomb, the death of Jesus in abandonment, your death and mine, and the deaths of countless human beings in various kinds of dark nights. But if we have seen his glory on the mountain, we know at least, whatever our terrors, that death cannot decide the boundaries of God's life With him, the door is always open and no one can shut it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Arcadia Cast. Click on our show notes to find more information about our sponsor, Michigan Church Extension Fund, as well as a link to Camp Arcadia's website where you can make a gift to support Camp's ministry, view our 2023 season schedule, register for retreats, and learn about serving on summer or end-of-season staff. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast feed so you can see every episode as soon as they are released. We hope today's episode blessed you, and we look forward to bringing you the next one.